Welcome to our Brave Feminine Leadership interview series where I get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders. And I get to ask them all about women in leadership, but we get to soak up their wisdom and perspective on life and leadership generally. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Craig Tiley to the conversation. Craig, it is wonderful to have you with me. Thanks, Melissa. Great to be be here with you. So you probably don't need an introduction, but let me jump in anyway. So I'll briefly touch on your bio and then we'll get going on our conversation. So Craig Tiley is recognised as one of Australia's most innovative and forward-thinking CEOs. His involvement initially as tournament director from 2006 and then as CEO of Tennis Australia from 2013, has seen the transformation and incredible success of the Australian Open. It's Craig's relationship with the players and relentless focus on improvement that sees the tournament as one of the players in Australia's favourite sport and entertainment events. Prior to Tennis Australia, he was tennis director at University of Illinois and twice earned the US National Coach of the Year Award. Craig's also been a lieutenant in the Army and was the sixth ever recipient of the South African Army Merit Award. Craig, so much for us to get into in this conversation that I'm fascinated to start. For people who haven't come across you before, would you share with us who are you as a human being? Oh, a tough question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think you get shaped by your your experiences uh, and your background, and, and I've been fortunate that I lived on uh, three different continents, um, lived in different parts of the world. Uh, uh, you know, I've had to battle through as a youth for um, opportunity. Um, you know, and and I, and I think the and you know had to work hard for everything I've ever got in life, and uh, haven't haven't been given anything, um, and uh, had to earn it. And so I think you you do get shaped uh, by um, by those experiences, and and I you know I think. The interaction with people, I think the first thing for me would be I, I have a passion for people and uh, I love being around people and a bit of a socialite, socializer, uh, definitely not socialite, socializer. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, I, and I just, because I, I, I do enjoy, you know, being around people. I, 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 I got into, this, I got into the, the uh, profession of coaching and teaching and, and, and tennis has happened to be the vehicle. It could have actually been anything because I do enjoy seeing people improve and, and give opportunity and and uh, and the coaching was a great passion because you every single day could have an impact and I really loved that and in many ways in this leadership role I have today you're doing the same thing you're coaching and you're teaching and I take full advantage of those environments where you can you can do that so so I think when you have something in your on your journey of life when there's something that you have a deep passion for and you're able to then apply that to your professional life, you get very lucky. And that's why I consider myself very lucky because it has been in teaching and coaching and and tennis happened to be the platform and the vehicle. And I had the experience in all facets of the sport. And and uh, and I think that that you know and and then the the deep passion I have for for people's improvement and being around people is uh, is part of that. So it all matches very well to this choice choice profession where you entertaining people, you you know develop them, trying to help them become tennis players. You're trying to persuade them to to play the game, um, and then at the same time, you know uh, every everyone. When I look at everyone, is I don't uh, I I accept and recognize people's differences, but I don't treat anybody differently. And uh, and I think the uh, and it doesn't matter if you rank 500 in the world or if you Serena Williams in 
Rafa Nadal or Roger Federer, uh, you'll get treated the same. And it does matter if you come from a background in the middle of Africa with uh, uh, with no opportunity, or you come from a background in in you know a major city with all the opportunities. So, so for me, it's it's uh, I I do pride pride myself on on treating everyone the same. Where's that come from, Craig? That's a good question, and I and I know. I have been asked that question before, probably from, a, I think from early age, early stages of my family, we, we grew up in apartheid South Africa. Um, our conversation around the table was, uh, was this is, this is the wrong form of, of, of not only government, but leadership. There's nothing that was right about it. Um, and as a family, what, you know, what could we do to, um, you know, to make a difference? And uh, and having the conversation and being open and transparent about it, and and then um, you know, and I, and and then I think I knew that that my future wasn't there, and I knew my future had to be somewhere else. And but then I was, you know, and I and I left the country before the changes happened, and um, and my family stayed, and and um, and were part of those changes so in, in a good way. And so, so I think I think definitely um, seeing that and seeing if single day what's wrong about where you live is something that gives you more empathy and and uh and more activism and i i do consider myself a bit of an activist and and uh and then and then going to live in the u.s where it was very different um but still depends where you live in the u.s because there's always an undertone of racism or an undertone of bias and uh and then coming to australia and and uh and similarly you know whether it be I, I do think that you, you on on the spectrum of people you're going to find those that uh, will, will will take action to ensure that there's never any form of of lack of respect or or discrimination for any reason, and on the other spectrum you'll be those that you know that still think that's right and uh, or appropriate. So so it doesn't matter what environment you're, you're always going to get get it and in some you get it more extreme than in others depending on culturally where you are so i've always been in tune to that and and always had an eye and an ear for when it happens um and uh and i think that that that's where i've been very lucky because uh, i've never i've never been blind to it and and then because of the because of the role i play on on you know I, I, and I always tell people this, you know, and this is a common statement: is that you, you'll meet the same people on the way up in your career as you will on the way down. And yes. So if you treat people differently, then expect yourself to be treated the same. So, so I think I think that's uh, you like in your background. If you don't have it in your background, then you then you've got to work hard to create it. Mm. So I wonder in your career, I remember you telling me that you had a you had a desire to sort of live on five continents. What was yeah. what would you know, was this a phase of being intentional about what you did with your life or what where did that all come from? I think it was a young, young phase I, I wanted to explore. Um I, I had come from a bit of a family of explorers and you know my brother who sails around the world, my sister who's lived all over the place, my other brother who's who runs his own business right through Africa? Uh, my father, who, who you know, I held deep sea diving records and climbing records, and was a pilot and parachutes, and, and, and a, wow. he did all sorts of adventurous things. So, so I think we came from a family, and 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 my mom, who was a teacher actually, and uh, I think we came from a family that everyone tried everything, and we always gave everything a go, and uh, and it was sometimes extreme stuff, but we weren't. There was no fear in the group to do it, and we did it as young kids, and. 
we just give everything a go and uh you know uh, we either walked or ride our rode our bikes to work uh, to sorry to school as a family and and um and yeah it, it it nothing was designed to be easy everything was designed to make sure that you 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 put in um your own effort and and I think at the very young age, I said, you know, I wanted the world to be small for me. And uh, so I wanted to discover it and learn different languages and, and live on different continents, be around different people. And wherever that took me is where it would take me. So, yeah, so I'm on, I think I'm on, you know, I've got two, two to go or one to go, one continent to go. <laughs> Hopefully we get to hang on to you for a while. So no, no, no because, yeah, we, we love it here. Yeah. We do love it. <laughs> Do you um do you bring your family up the same way? Do you think are you jumping out of planes and doing things that uh, that I haven't heard nope. of? Um, there are moments where we would do something which is probably on the edge, but 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 probably not the same. I think uh, we, we live in a much more risk averse world now yes. than we used to, and so so that kind of goes along with it. And and uh, but I but but you know maybe sometimes it's considered an old school approach, but I am I am. You know, I do believe kids and people should get out into the water and get out of the land and go and live in other people's environment, go and spend some time giving back. Mm. Um, and so, you know, with our kids, I, I, I'm hoping they've been brought up with a, with with empathy and with respect for others and put other people ahead of themselves first and and not be selfish. And but you know, it's it's, it's hard because I, I think we we live in a different world today, and and you, you are a product of the environment in many in many ways. And if you can't, if you can't, if you can't, you know, uh, adjust that environment or move the environment in the direction you need to do, you need to change it. And uh, and it's either by influencing the environment to change it or get out of it and get to another one. And I think that's got to be recognised. You got to do that early. You and I had a conversation um, when we first met around um, feedback broadly and yeah. performance improvement, and I'd just love to get straight into that with you. Um, you know, I love that your journey has been as a coach, um, yeah. elite coach, um, and then into um, elite leadership roles along the way. Just want to explore with you. I mean, I have a personal uh, sort of belief that people just don't get enough feedback in the corporate yeah. environment. Um, either leaders are reticent to give it, people don't want to hear it, but there's just not enough good actionable feedback going on. Can I just get your take on all of this and then perhaps some things we need to do okay. to get better at it? Yeah, it's a great comment because it is at the core of everything improving. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, uh, you know, there's, there's several kinds of feedback. Your positive feedback. Negative feedback, no feedback, but all of its feedback. Yes, and um, and 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 I and I, I I'm of the view that as as a leader or as an aspiring leader, if you have two ways you can approach things. The first way you can view yourself as being the um, the keeper of all the information and the holder of all the expertise. Um. And then, and and you're on top of the pile, and you've got this right to be up there, and therefore to stay up there, you've got to keep all the information and hold all the expertise. Whew. Or yeah, or on the other hand, you can be the leader who asks the first question for feedback, mm. or doesn't say the first thing, or listens and acknowledges that comment uh, or that position. And uh, and people talk about you know leaders of yesterday versus leaders of today. I, I think even today there's those two um, on those on this on the spectrum of leadership. 
a game on the left hand side and on the right hand side the two spectrums and and I think yeah, there's there, everyone still a lot of people still exist on that spectrum. I think there's fewer on the command and control spectrum, and there's and there's um, then there more is on the open listening spectrum. Maybe even there's even more on the laissez faire spectrum, which is on the, which is which is just very much more relaxed as a leader. Yeah. So I, I um, if you have a natural inclination to want to know about people, you you really more than halfway there. Mm-hmm. And um, and if you don't have that natural inclination. Then that's part of the thing you have to work on as a leader. Is you need to any environment you're in with people, you need to find out who they are, what are their names, what's their story, and you want to know that before anyone needs to know yours. And uh, and I and I think that it's little techniques. You know, you get in the elevator, you say hi to everyone. How's your day? How are you doing? Mm-hmm. If you remember someone's name, it's you know Belinda. How did the day go? You know, what do you think? Uh, what can we do better? You have like maybe, you know, a few seconds in a, in in the building to do that, or you or you're walking out the building. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know, like have a great night. Look forward to seeing you tomorrow. We'll see you, Jan. You know, it was really good what happened today. What do you think? So I think in 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 that context, it's very easy uh, to do that, um, and even strangers. Um, and uh, I make a point is that when I meet someone, I get their name and I make a point of reconnecting with them, even if it's a complete stranger, any way, any form. And and I, from that, I've had many sliding door moments that have really helped my career. And uh, people I've reconnected with in an environment I never met them or met them for the first time have gone on to become some of my best friends and have gone yeah. on to become some of my great uh, mentors. And um and yeah, so I, 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 I am definitely of the view that you have to have that openness and that energy and people need to know that uh, you're, you're a gateway to their improvement uh, not, um, and, and, I, and, I, and you're an open gateway to their improvement and, and they see a pathway through you for them to be better. How do you, um, you know, can can you even do this? But, you know, if you think about your role as a tennis coach and then you think about your role as a CEO, what what have you directly taken from coaching into that role? The improvement of the person you're with is more important than your own, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 then it could be the person or the people. So when you're coaching, you are imparting your knowledge and your experience uh, to the environment, and you're hoping that the student will take some of that and pick some of that up so that they can become better. Uh, now, in this case, they want to be a better tennis player or yeah. want to be better, whatever it may be. And I'm in that environment for that period of time to try and help them become better. Mm-hmm. And you can take that exact principle and put it when you're leading an organization or people, and uh, your job is to find a way for them to become better. Now, if you have it, if you have the skill to bring in great talent and then you create the environment for them to become better, that's when you fly. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have great talent, you've got to find a way to develop and to and to and to um, and have talent improve, and then again, you give them the environment where they can become better, uh, and then they can fly. And uh, and I think that's that's at the crux of leadership, and that's why you know if you were a coach and if you had success as a coach or success as a teacher, in other words, your students, the relationship they had a great deal of respect for, and they recall you as someone that impacted, made a difference in their lives. You can take that skill into leadership, and it's the number one skill that you need to have, in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think people say oh, I've got to be a good communicator or a good collaborator, and and these are all leadership buzzwords. Mm. But at the core of it is, 
can you improve the people's lives who are in the environment, in your environment and in the environment of the organisation? Craig, how did the journey go from, you know, coming over as tournament director um, here with Tennis Australia? How did that sort of journey progress into the CEO role? Yeah, well, even before that, I, I was running a business in the US. I was, I was enjoying the work I was doing, having success, um, and uh, I was loving living there. Um, yeah, great, great uh, group of friends. Um, and then a job popped up in Australia, and I was contacted by it. I thought, oh, that's never been on my radar. Although there's one continent that I haven't been to to live on yet, but uh, never been on my ra- never been in the radar. And then I thought I'd come down and have a look, and I came down and had a look, and I really liked the people and and like the opportunity. So I jumped into it and I went back and, you know, I left my business, resigned from the job I also had. And and then within a few months I was here and, and I didn't know anybody really and didn't know anything and had to quickly learn. I had this perception that Australian tennis was the best, but it was in it was in a bad position at that yeah. time. There was yeah. um and there was lots of things that needed to change. And and I was going through a journey of discovery on those changes and and, uh, and I was fortunate. The principles of how I approach leadership and how I approach people always stayed the same. And I was also learning how to be better at it as well as I went on this journey. So I was charged with it on a three-month contract to make the change. And I was charged with the opportunity. So I went around the country completely overhauling the performance side of the business, the player development side of it. And then after about a year and a half of doing that, then I was asked to be the tournament director. And I, and I didn't think they expected at that point and I, it was only part of the role I was given, and I thought I'll transform that. And then, and then I think in that period of time of five years, I just worked hard every day, tried to do the best I could possibly do. Always listened to people, uh, always promoted people, wanted people to do well. And when it was talent, we I recognised we had talent. I made sure that they really had the tools to be great, and we had success. And the tournament started to transform, and the money, the business started to make money. And uh, and then the board asked me to become the CEO, and that was another moment for me where I was in, about to go back to do, doing something else in another part of the world, and uh, and then decided no, that this this would be a fun another fun journey to have. And so I've had three different jobs in the same company. Mm. Um, I don't think I would have been here this long if I just had one job because yes. I also believe change is a good thing. Yeah. And for most people, the pain of change is greater than the pain of losing. So people would choose to lose over change. And I've always tried to encourage in in my in my leadership journey is that you know embrace change. You should want change, an insatiable desire for change, mm. because then you can open up your world. Um, and uh, and yeah, so so from a personal point of view, I was at that point of making that decision. And uh, I look back, and it was definitely the right decision because the organization's grown. It's you know quadrupled in revenue. You know mm. we're close to a million people coming through the gates. We have a big impact on the. On the country and the economy and it's great to be in this privileged position and as long as we keep improving and i'm enjoying it and people feel like they're getting benefit from my, le- from my leadership i'll stay when that's those stop i'll go who coaches you oh it's, it's a good question i um i everyone this yeah. is, is my first answer yeah. um i learned some things this morning uh, we did a team chat to our 600 staff and 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 now one of our leaders in technology a new leader um you know, shared a story. And, and what I learned from his story is that when I first met him, I didn't ask enough to find out more about his story. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a reminder that you can't be constrained by time, spend more time with people. And I just got that quick reminder this morning. Yeah. And uh, so you learn every day. 
you learn from the people that are in your organization, you learn from the people that are around you, you learn from your family, uh, you learn, you learn from your partner, you learn from your kids, you learn, you learn every day. And uh and so I have that in an informal way. And in a more formal way, there's certain people in the world that I talk to that mm. sometimes they don't know they're coaching me because I'm yes. just having a conversation. And other times I ask them for their advice. And they'll be leaders of industry. There's, there's a few in a few in the US and and uh, a few in Europe. And and I just I you know I always lean on them if if there's something I want to ask. But I also call people randomly. And uh, and I um, I'm a big I'm a big believer in connecting. I have a discipline every day. I, there's no less than three, no more than five people I contact randomly every single day. And uh, I do it by email or by text or by phone or by WhatsApp. And, uh, and I did it this morning. You know, it can be a family member or it can be, uh, it could be someone that you haven't spoken to a long time. It can be, it can be someone, but it's part of my random contact group. And, um, and I just do it as a discipline and it takes, can take sometimes two minutes, sometimes can take 15 minutes. Mm. And uh, and it's totally worth it. Last night I I got only got it done late last night, and and uh, I contacted the person I see, see saw at the Grand Prix that I hadn't seen in about ten years. I contacted someone I met for the first time at the Grand Prix who's gone back to Italy now, um, and I contacted someone um, that I wanted to get some advice from on something that I hadn't spoken to in about four years. And so that's amazing i really love that you know i'm always encouraging people to um build deep networks not superficial networks and this sounds like these are really deep networks that you're building um what other disciplines do you have so that's one uh that's the that's probably uh that's probably the top one um I'll talk about the disciplines I don't have that I should have because you learn all more from those. Love to hear. Yeah, I, the the disciplines I don't have um, is the management of my time um, in in a more structured way. Um, I think there's 24 hours in a day, and I can get it done in 24 hours. And because of that, I do it in 23, so I take all day, whereas I could do it in less. So the discipline of time management is an ongoing battle for me. Yes, um, because I always want to be available. And I always want to be accessible, and I don't want to miss out. And yeah. so, so that's a problem. Um, and then, and and then with that, the other thing is, uh, I think you absolutely have to have time out for physical and mental health. And and uh, and I do that in a very unstructured way. And and because I'm running around doing stuff the whole time, I'm saying to myself, that's covering a lot of my activities. Yes. You know, I'll walk up the stairs, I'll walk down the stairs for eight stories. I won't jump in. I'll do those things, and that's covering my activity. And and I think it's probably better sometimes to carve out a period of time yes. and actually physic- and actually be disciplined in making that time. So don't do that well. Um, but other disciplines I have is that, you know, I, 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 I don't, uh, I make sure that I don't eat a lot. I don't uh, eat unwell. I, I, I eat healthy. Um, I'm, I'm lucky and I enjoy healthy food. Um, you know, and uh, I'd rather snack on grapes than go and sit and have a big lunch. I'm not a big lunch eater. So yeah. You know, going to meet someone at the lunch is one of the le- the things I, I, I like the least mm. is lunch eating meetings. Um, I'm not uh, I'm not a fan of those because you, I don't think you don't get much exercise with just your mouth, um, and you you know, and then you so that yeah, but uh, but so um, so the yeah, the discipline I have is is probably the second discipline I have outside of the connecting is also making sure that I'm always accessible, mm. um, and that has. You know, it's down. It's pluses and minuses, but um, there's I, I'm easy to get hold of, um, and uh, and I do pride myself on responding. 
Um, I think it's out of COVID that's got a little bit more out of control because actually um, we were talking about yesterday, the team was talking about we, the our database for our invitations for our VIP hospitality in Australian Open. We normally invite eight to 9,000 people and that come and uh, what we invite and they don't all come because some people on holiday and that kind of stuff. And we're talking about how we can have an accurate database. And someone said, well, we'll just go to your address book. And uh, and then I looked at my address book and I was, yeah, I pretty much have more than that in, in my, in my contacts. And so my contacts have all the updated ones. So that's what we're going to use. So, so I think that, yeah, so that it can get out of control as well. Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute, just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. That's fascinating to me, um, that that discipline of connecting with people, so having that connection of random sort of, you know, um, people and reconnection comes ahead of disciplined exercise for you. Yep. What's the value that's supporting that um, connection, do you think? It goes with my philosophy of like really getting into other people's world first. Mm. So I'm willing to sacrifice what I need to do for myself over mm. that. Kind of always been that way. I don't, I don't consider that a burden. You know, I consider that an opportunity. And, yeah. uh, and I think the, I mean, this afternoon I'm catching, I'm, I, I do mentor a lot of other people too. And I'm catching mm. up with someone for an hour and, I'll sit down for an hour and I'll do a lot of mentoring, but I'm actually going to learn a lot as well. So I'm really excited about that. So that's like a, I feel like that's my break today, you know, that session for an hour. I I can tell obviously that, you know, not only are you a very successful leader, but humble also, right? And I can hear that coming through in spades in, in our conversation and when we first met. And so the next question you're probably not going to love, but um, I read, I think it was probably the in review magazine and forgive me if i've got yeah. it wrong but there was a lovely uh big article on jane herdlicker who was a client of mine so i know jane yeah. and i read the article yeah. with interest and knowing that you and i were having this conversation it was one of those moments where your name popped up um through yeah. the article and it was jane talking about having met you this is long before she was associated with um Tennis, the board yeah. certainly yeah. but seeing you and thinking i can learn something from yeah. craft. what do you think it was that she saw? Well, coming back to the first point is that I'm personally not a fan of. I'm a background person, so yes. when when I have my you know my and over COVID, I had my face on the news a lot, and yeah. and I prefer that not to be the case. But yes. it goes with the territory, so you have to just accept it. But I think, you know, that I recall that conversation Jane and I had, and it, and it was, again, just sharing of insights. You know, mm-hmm. Jane's our chair. I learn a lot every day from her. And and uh, um, and, I, and I'm, I'm proud of the fact that uh, that I have, you know, been the biggest advocate for, for creating a diverse leadership group and diversity on our board and diversity in our executive team and diversity in our business and, and, and keep pushing it because it's an ongoing journey. I don't think you ever arrive when you need to. Uh, you need to um, change um, for diversity and for inclusion, and I, and I, yeah, that conversation I remember, and, and and she 
it, it was more around at, at that point um, when she was at, at, at Qantas and Jetstar, there was some issues with the pilots' union and, mm. and engaging the pilots' union. And she just wanted to understand how my approach was with the players because mm-hmm. we don't employ the players. They're independent contractors. There's uh, 650 of them. Um, and so they're a very big cohort. They're international. And you've got to influence them every single day. And then you've got to have them come and make some tough decisions against them and for them and and got to still get them to to love the tournament and love yes. the experience and love you so you can make those decisions. And so we just had the, that conversation on the techniques that I used. And and um and and the and the biggest technique that is is was to create a personal relationship. And uh and I, you know, you pick out first the key influences, and that's where you spend your first energy, and then you go to everyone and you and everyone knows that anyone can talk to you at any time. Um I built an office down for the tournament, opened the front door. Took the doors off the wall. Yes. But make it a completely glass office. Um, and uh, it, w- it would normally be like I'm sitting here now in on a on a uh, you know on a hot desk and an open desk because I don't have an office, I don't want an office. No. Um, but when we downstairs with a tournament, we have a space and the players have to walk past that every so they have to go to the to the, the locker room, they have to walk past it to the change rooms. And uh, and so I can engage with them every walk they make there and back and there and back with all 650 for a period of, th- of four weeks. And, uh, and I spend a lot of energy in doing that. And then when we have problems come along, we have issues we've got to deal with, I can call my person and we can have a discussion and it's dealt with. Um, that is, um, I mean, there's so many incredible things you've just brought up there, but also just I think given me a lot more insight into your role because I hadn't necessarily understood the enormous stakeholder management complexity of of that part as well it is and i i can pride myself on the fact that every single of the 600 plus players i know their name and mm. most of them i know their story and mm. it keeps churning too because some retire some come in and mm. and uh but i work on it and um and i and i think that's why you know, that's why they love one of the reasons not the only that's one of the yes. reasons why they love this round because it's personalized for them yes. and i think when the team see that then they do the same Yes. So then, it, then it just spreads with everyone, and it's really the—I mean, it's really the only way that I know how to lead. So if someone told me there's this other box how to lead, and I gave it a go, I, I don't know if it would succeed or not. But it's the only way that I've really learned how to lead. And 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 I had some really good when I did my master's degree. I had a really good professor who who was uh, who actually we had a subject to teach, and he ne- we never for a whole year spoke about the subject. Um, but it was all all about um, you know what was important in in changing people's lives and leading and how to include people and and he just had a passion for that mm-hmm. and and then I would ask questions around that and then um, and it was you know and and, and thank goodness it was uh, that conversation versus the conversation because it, it, he was a statistics teacher oh and, wow yeah, and so uh, <laughs> and I and I and I had it was one subject which I always struggled with and I, I saved it for the end of my master's degree because it's something I should have done at the beginning because I hated it yes. but man this was this was like this was a year of great great teaching and it wasn't statistics <laughs> my um my husband who is a teacher uh we were just talking on the weekend about statistics was his least favorite subject yeah well I'm with, I'm with you I'm with your husband yeah and he <laughs> failed it so I suspect he might I do you might need this connection. So, and, and I think that's important, Melissa, too, is that, you know, I, I actually embraced failure. Uh, okay. I didn't accept it, yeah, uh, but I embraced it as as just another opportunity. And that's a hard – my father taught me that and because uh, he went through very moments. He went from highly successful career to nothing, another highly successful career, 
and uh and so we were kids when that journey was happening so uh and he taught us about that it was and 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 and, and how to manage it and i think that's that was really probably when i reflect now those were great lessons mm. so let's go to that time where you know and you brought it up earlier around having to be front of newspapers i don't want to assume that's the hardest point in your leadership career i'm going to ask you that question what has been the hardest point and um Let's just see where the conversation takes us. Yeah, I think uh, if I look recent, I think the hardest point was the uh, over the last year was was definitely um, Novak Djokovic leaving Australia and the intensity of the media around that. There was media parked outside our house for two weeks. Um, there was security alerts. There was death threats. There were, um, you know, there was there there was. In the community, there were comments about being an anti-vaxxer and yes. and, uh, and being 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 labelled something and uh, and then being blamed for decisions and so all that went on. There's a lot of noise. What I learned during that period is step away from the noise. And this happened accidentally. Step away from the noise and focus on the things you can control, the things you can make a difference in. And the things I could make a difference in were getting the tournament going, getting the players on the court. And starting with the tournament, doing the best job we can, and delivering a great event for the state and for and for Australia, and uh, entering into the narrative and entering into the noise and the debates and trying to defend our position or say what our experience was was not going to be something that was going to change anything. No. So that was an early decision that we made, and that really helped me mentally because that was, and I was then enabled to actually be really relaxed than I was in that period. I I, I slept well when I. Had my few hours of sleep and yes. and uh, um, I, I avoided I avoided reading and watching and looking at the media because because that can be easy to to wind you up or not mm-hmm. and and uh, and there's a lot of people in the media that are friends that uh, they're doing their job I I you know I, I acknowledge that and uh, but I also know what I did and what we did so I was comfortable with that and um, so that was a really intense period. What I learned by myself is you have to. You have to get the noise out of your thinking. Yes, and you've got to find a way to do that because there's just more of it, and it was intense. I had family members calling me from around the world, reading front pages of papers, and for, you know what, what was great about it? I had friends come out the woodwork that I hadn't spoken to in 20 years that now I'm talking to because yes. of that. Yes. So, so there's some positives, um, but it was a hard time. And then the year before that is having all of you know, 1,300 people. We flew on 30 planes ourselves which we funded into australia putting them in 15 days of lockdown yes and you've got the best athletes in the world the only event that's ever done this uh or only business and then and then put them to lockdown and having to communicate about six hours a day with the different groups through zoom through online and yes. and uh, and being absolutely abused and complained to and and, and they're still having to front front it and and tell them what's going on and how we're trying to improve it and and decisions were made by health officers that that were not decisions we just had to implement. We couldn't change them like they may think we could. Yes. So, um, so there was a hard period of intense fifteen days, not not much sleep, but dealing with the with the playing group. Um, mm-hmm. But great respect for them, the way they came the way they came out of that, and and then went out and played. You know, great respect. In fact, that was a year tennis Australia paid for 30% of the entire prize money that was available for the, the profession of tennis the entire year around the world. Wow. We funded 30% of it. So proud of the fact that we kept that going. 
And then I think other moments from a leadership perspective was probably in the army when I was thrust very quickly into leadership role. Um, I had a, a large platoon of, of people that I had to lead. Many of them were older, more experienced than I was, some more educated. Uh, I hadn't finished my degree yet. Uh, I, I'd been playing some tennis professionally and came back to the country to the army. I did some extra time because then they helped fund your education. And I was put into a um, an officer's uh, in a leadership role and, and and have to lead this group of people. And and I think that was a time where I learned a lot. I learned about your physical um, limits, mm. uh, your mental limits in pain. Um, and I learned you go a lot farther than you think you can go. And uh, and that's really helped me with with appreciating, you know, how far you know, I could push myself. How do you manage your response, you know, when things happen outside of your control? How do you manage that? I thought I would manage I thought I would respond very differently because I'm you know I've I am I think I used to be more of a control freak than I am today yeah. where I feel like I've got to be on top of everything yeah. uh, try and make a difference in everything and now I'm a bit more relaxed by it because uh, I've learned from people around me who tell me that and mm. uh, um but uh, the one thing that I want to control and that I will always want to control and that's my response mm. and uh, as you become more experienced you, you take more time for your response and you think a bit more about what your response should be or you've had a lot of practice so you can pull one of those things out the out the drawer and and, and it's interesting you know you thrust into different environments i just came back from miami last week and i flew from la to miami and i get on the plane and i sit in a seat um and i the person sitting next to me i think i've seen somewhere before kind of recognize not recognize and Anyway, so I sit next to him and I thought, shall I ask him or shall I not say anything? My personality is I say, hey, how are you doing? American accent. And and it turned out to be John Voigt, the actor John Voigt. And uh, and then I said to him, I said, look, you probably hate this. We've got a four-hour flight. I want to know a lot about your life and Angela Jolie. And, and then and I was intrigued. And uh, do you mind if um, if we have a conversation? He said, and first he said, I think you've sat next to the wrong guy because I want to have just as long a conversation with you as you're going to have with me. And we talked for like four and a half hours. I love that. And then at the end of it, he gave me a lift and he gave me his number. He said, when you're in LA, stop by, you can have a chat. And, but it was just, it was interesting people. And, and the reason why I bring it up, because, you know, when you, my response to that was to get to know someone. Yes. And my follow-up response was to stay connected. Uh, where previously, you know, the res- in, in, in early stages of my leadership, I wasn't so focused on the response, I was more focused on the control. Yes, okay, that's fascinating. Um, you and I best not sit together on a plane because I often get teased for making friends whilst on flight, probably annoying mm-hmm. plenty of people I'm sitting next to, but what a great opportunity. Well, it was. I mean, some of our best friends here in Australia, we met on a plane. That's so lovely. I love that story. Um, you know that my one of my focuses in these conversations is, um, you know, how do we inspire more females into CEO roles, and how do we how do we sort of fix what I see as a wonderful opportunity for us? Why do you think there are not more female CEOs? Do you have thoughts on that? I, I, I do. I have lots of thoughts on it. <laughs> I think. Um, you know, if if the spectrum of diversity and inclusion um, and um, and respect and empathy and humbleness, you know, on that spectrum, is as we we get into an environment where we um, choose to not make 
decisions that are in the best interest of others. Yeah. And we choose to make decisions that are the best interest of us. And I think that selfishness causes um, lack of inclusion, lack of diversity, lack of humbleness, lack of empathy. And so it has to start with the individual. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear, and I, you can see it in night and day. I grew up in, a, in an environment that discriminated, so I can see discrimination at, at immediately. I think I have, the, I have the, the, have the privilege of being able to see it before most people do. Yes. Um, but on the other hand, then I also see if you're not around a group of people that come from different backgrounds, have different representation, have different views and different thoughts, how can you be really good? Mm-hmm. You know, how can you excel? You can't excel. Uh, woman leadership, leadership of women, um, immediately provide that diversity. Yes. Immediately provide that different thinking of thought. So why not? Why are you not going to give the, the, you, yourself the best chance to excel and be great? And to do that, you've got to you've got to welcome anyone into into an environment so you can have that diversity. And I and I people say, well, oh, you know, like in tennis. Women play two out of three sets, men play three out of five, it's more valuable. And I totally disagree with that because I've got the numbers to back it up. Mm. And and it's about the quality and it's a, and and paying women equal prize money for us, we've been for over 30 years, is good for our business. Mm. And it promotes and supports our business and we make money. And so, you know, so this whole thing about like not making money and not profile that people don't watch, it's hogwash. Mm. It's old fashioned and it's hogwash. And people that are saying that are are probably not, you know, they're, they're never going to get to a point where they're going to promote. So so that's a bit of background. I can go on and on this one, but it's a bit of background on the thinking. But coming to your question on why, you know, they're not CEOs, I think the first thing is those people that are in positions of leadership need to have a high level of accountability of ensuring that there's an opportunity for women leadership in an organization or in an environment. And that may take different thinking. So like when you go out to market and you advertise for a job, a guy is going to approach it differently to a woman. Yes. And so know that, you know, and then you have a panel and you have a, you have, you have an interview. If it's made up of all men, you're probably not going to hire the woman. Mm. Yeah. So that panel better have a diversity. Then when they come on a team and a leadership team, they can't come into a team of all men. You, you know, said something to me that fascinated me about that in terms of your own organization around interview panels. Yeah. Don't don't uh, if um, if there's not diversity on the panel, I won't sign off on the candidate. And if there's not uh, um, diversity in the interview, I won't sign off on the candidate. Um, and if there's not ongoing uh, choice of woman, I won't sign off on the candidate. Mm. And uh, so that's kind of you would consider that's a quota approach. Yes, I'm not I'm not averse to it because if organisations are not moving the dial, there needs to be some kind of mechanism put in that forces the movement. That's why I come back to accountability. Either the STIs of the leaders or the LTIs of the leaders, or a requirement that there has to be, you know, a certain number. We we have a board. We have equal number of men and women on our board, on our executive team, in our senior leadership team. We're probably about 50-50 across the organization. It goes up and down around that number. Mm-hmm. Um, we spend the same money on women as we do on men. Um, so it's not really even a conversation in our organization. It's just a assisting except. So except what we're working on now is ensuring that we're even more inclusive, yes. not just for women in leadership, but but also for our First Nations people, people of, of different multicultural backgrounds, people. That, and it's not token. And the ours can can sniff out tokenism, and and that's just as bad as um, 
Tokyo is just as bad as lack of lack of diversity. So, um, yeah. So I think I think the uh, it's something you've got to be active on every day. It's yeah. not a strategy that you have. It's an action that you have. And uh, and I think that uh, and I've seen the benefit. We've grown. I would say we've grown as an organization because we have more women leaders. Um, I love the it's an action you have, not a strategy you have. Yeah, yeah, that is um, that is fantastic. Um, we're at risk of going for a four and a half hour conversation yeah. here, um, Craig, and and um, so there may have to be part two down the track somewhere because I'm fascinated with the conversation. But I do want to ask you the question I ask of everybody, which is, you know, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean, and do you think it needs to change? When I when you first showed that to me, I said, "Well, I'm going to take the word brave out, and I'm going to put it on the men, because the men need to make brave decisions and sacrifice themselves to ensure we have opportunities for women to lead." I'm surrounded by great women, mm-hmm. and I see. I must talk to my sister often. The prejudice against her and her professional career was remarkable. Yeah. And, and this, and I'm, you know. We're not different, much different in age, and and her story versus my story felt like I was the privileged one, no. and she was not. So you can't have that. It's just like so, so, so. I think the so the so that's why I said the brave needs to be on those that that can that can really make the change. Uh, Liz's Broderick have a great deal of respect for and uh, and and the founder of Male Champions for Change, and I was one of the first to put my hand up and said, "Let me join and see what difference I could make," and at least. You know, be an activist in the group, and I continue to do as best as I can in that. But, but, uh, but it's it's organisations like that, you know, where the men can make a difference. It's 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 people like Liz that keep people accountable mm-hmm. and on it. Um, but I, but I, um, I, you know, in key leadership positions, when um, I always I always remember this. I always remember reading media comments when Julia Gillard was our prime minister, and I thought. You wouldn't; those comments wouldn't be there if it was if it, if it was a, a, a man as a prime minister. And that's just like we it's, it's wrong. Yeah. I mean, nothing else I can say is just simply wrong. So we've got to call it out. Yeah. Someone's got to call it out. We've got to say that that's just, you know it's not not appropriate. And 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 the, and the I think the the onus being a woman leader, and I can't speak that from a woman leader, but I can just hear the. the, the what women needs go through is far greater than that for men. So that gap has to close, and it's on the men to close it, um, and it's, it's on, ongoing on the women to. Um, I think this organisation Heads Over Heels, which helps support uh, women, um, women startup leaders. I, I, I contribute to that as well because you know that's fantastic seeing some of the stuff and the leadership and the ideas that come out of that are brilliant. But we have to do more of that because unless there's action, you know. And again, come to word is you can come up with ideas and with strategies and positioning down the road, but there has to be daily action. So for me, brave feminine leadership is about is about action today. I had the pleasure of interviewing Liz um, in a previous series, and we had a brilliant yeah. conversation. And yeah. Um, and yeah, and it was interesting because I had also spoken to David Thody, and he also was one of the original male male and yeah. he said to me at the time, when I said, how did you get into that? He said, well, if Liz calls, you don't say no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which um, It's pretty much Liz's sister, Carolyn, is our chief medical officer, so I'm involved with the Broderick family, all very high achievers. But but thank God for Liz because, honestly, you know, having someone championing the change, and, and she's more than anyone seen the difficulty. And um, I have travelled through 
places in Africa and places mm-hmm. in Southeast Asia, and I've seen how women are treated. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that you know, coming back to a first world country like we have here, there's just no excuse. No, there's just no excuse. Not. Thank you so much, Craig, for um, you know spending the time with me and adding your voice to this conversation, and for being an activist. Um, and I'm not sure. I'm not so sure that your slip of tongue at the start of the interview around socialite. Um, I'm not quite sure that that was incorrect. Uh, now that I understand, now that I understand more about you, I think there's a, a good sense of FOMO going on there, um, which is, I'm sure, what makes you such a wonderful engaged leader. But thank you for joining me. Anytime. It's great that you do it. It's always good to talk about people's journeys and uh, listening to other people's stories because that's how you learn. And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second guessing themselves so that they can maximize their influence and impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.